I'm shifting the way I invest in my investment portfolio from a cash on cash and a return on investment metric and think the way I'm thinking about my business to a return on equity standpoint. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. All right, everybody, we are in a real estate series with Matt Four on the Better Wealth Show, and we just have a bunch of random questions as it relates to the real estate series that we've been in. So number one, someone asks, should I use a HELOC to invest in another property? So that's question number one. Question number two is um, 1035 time limits. It's a special tax ad advantage we get by putting money from a sale of a property into another, and what's the time limits on that? The third one, uh, what do I do with bad tenant? That's a great question, actually. And then number four is invest in my market if my market is too high. Like, should I do that? Or is, is there advantages of finding other markets? So the first one, home equity line of credit. There's been a lot of hype around using these things. A lot of people call them HELOCs. And what are the pros and cons and how would you answer that? Yeah, so this is, should you, it depends on your personal situation. I'm yeah. not gonna tell you whether you should or you shouldn't because if you have a very low risk tolerance, then that's probably not the best strategy for you. If you have a very high risk tolerance, then you probably are more on the yes spectrum and find more debt that you can go acquire to invest in real estate and assets and things like that. So ultimately 2021 and over the past really 18 months, Home prices for people, single family homes have appreciated tremendously. You can go tap into that equity to buy real estate. Here's just the way I think about it. I'm shifting the way I invest in my investment portfolio from a cash on cash and a return on investment metric and think the way I'm thinking about my business to a return on equity standpoint. And so what a return on equity standpoint means is if I own a property full out in my home, $300,000, Dave Ramsey's blessed me with the debt-free way and I don't have to pay anything except for the government and insurance to, to own my property every single month because we never really fully own our property, then that money is not making you any money. Now, maybe you're okay with that. If you can sleep better at night because of that, go sleep better at night. I'm never going to tell people to take risk that they can't sleep at night. But ultimately, you have $300,000 there that could be deployed in other assets. So one of the things that I'm thinking about is, okay, I have a property that's $300,000. If I pull $100,000 out of it and move it into another asset, now I've got my money essentially in two different places. It's still going to appreciate in my home value over the long run, over a, a long enough time period. And it's over here working in a cash flow and appreciating asset in another, ass, in another home. To me, that seems to be more reasonable. The second thing I would say here, and I am not a lawyer and I'm not giving legal advice at all, but some wealthy people use debt as an asset protection plan for them. So if I own a house free and clear for $300,000 and, and Caleb sues me for $250,000, his attorney is going to realize that I have $250,000 in a home and they're going to come and try to foreclose on that home and say that I have the money to pay him and it's in my home. So some people, and I'm not saying you have to go do this or you should go do this or anything like that. I want to try to change your mind on how you think about things would take out $200,000 worth of debt on that property, go deploy it in another asset, let that money continue to work. If someone's attorney comes after me for $250,000 and they pull up my home, they see, oh, he's only got $100,000 in it. 
it's not worth the time, effort, money, and legality process to go do it. So should you pull out a heat lock to invest in rental properties? It depends where you are in the risk tolerance. It depends where you are in the clarity stage. What are you really trying to accomplish and where do you really want to go? And then ultimately, what are you going to do with that money? Could it be better served in another asset to continue to grow and accelerate your financial position? I like it. Rewatch that or re-listen to that if you're wanting to really figure out a framework of how to think about a HELOC. Um, the next one is understanding 1035 and the time limit. Yeah. So in real estate, there's something called a 1031 exchange. And a 1031 exchange means that when you sell one of your real estate investments, you normally see a capital gain. So that $100,000 property that I purchased is now worth $300,000 and I sell it, there's $200,000 worth of capital gains that I need to pay taxes on. Real estate has this beautiful rule where you can actually take that $200,000 and move it into a different property and not have to pay the taxes on it. Now, I went through this process and I failed at this process. So I'm trying to share my learnings with you. You must set up a separate escrow account for that $200,000 to be moved into. You must identify a property. I think it's within 45 days. And then you must close on that property. I think again, within, within 90 days. So why I'm saying this is go to your attorney and figure out all the legalities of it. I one time pulled the trigger too quickly on selling one of my properties. And then I was like, oh, just 1031 it. And they're like, yeah, that we have to set up a legal framework around that. And this is how much it's going to cost. And then I said, well, I'll just roll it into a syndication. I called one of my syndication friends and they were like, we're really not going to do a 1031 exchange for $200,000. Now, if you had a million dollars, we could set up entities and things like that because they also have to set up their entity to be able to accept that money. So it's a fantastic, beautiful way to punt your tax bill downstream and not have to pay taxes today on that money. However, I would say it's not as easy as that. And you want to make sure you consult your CPAs and attorneys to get that set up. And ultimately, have a couple options in mind because that 90-day shot clock comes up pretty quick. And I think I might have called, said a 1035. And 1035 is, in our world, in insurance, the very similar thing where you can transfer uh, a life or annuity to another like um, product and, and not have to pay the taxes. So love how the tax code is consistent in that. Uh, another question um, goes like this. What if you have a bad tenant? What, what are your options? What do you do? Yeah, it depends where you live, right? Um, ultimately, if you live in Chicago, buckle up because it's going to be eight to nine months before you can get them out. Um, if you live in a landlord friendly state in Texas, I've heard if they don't pay rent on the fifth, you could have them out in like the 15th. Um, so it's it's crazy accelerated down there. And then obviously 2020 and the eviction moratorium through everything in a wrench. Um, there's a couple things I would say with this. Uh, first and foremost, an interesting strategy that I have seen with this is called cash for keys. And cash for keys is where I go to that tenant and I say, hey, I will pay you a certain amount of dollars to move out of the property by the end of the week. Look, no one likes paying somebody that doesn't pay them rent and you feel like you're rewarding bad behavior. But ultimately, depending on where you live and depending on the process and your ability to execute on the process, it could be anywhere before, between 14, 21 to nine months to get somebody out. And it's much more cheaper, much more quick, much more smooth just to say, I will pay you to leave. And for the tenant perspective, it helps them because they don't have an eviction on their record. They're not having to go through all the legal processes. And ultimately, I mean, for what it's worth, some 
people that don't pay their rent probably don't have money to pay for a security deposit to go live somewhere else. And essentially you're helping remove that obstacle and that barrier of leaving the house. Now, with all that being said, one of the strategies that I think is very interesting coming out of this eviction moratorium is this shift towards month to month leasing. And what that means is you can't evict someone because they're not paying on their rent in certain areas of the country right now and certain states are a little bit stricter than others. But you can evict somebody that is trespassing on their property on your property because their lease has expired. So an interesting strategy, and this is one of the downstream effects of sometimes the government getting involved in private industry is now you're going to go month to month with certain people. And if you're renting as a tenant, you could be living in a place in August. And by the end of August, the landlord says you need to be out. You could be living in a place in August. And by the end of September, the landlord says, hey, your rent's going to double in the next two weeks and you have to move again. So a month to month strategy is a good, effective way to kind of avoid or to navigate these difficult times right now with eviction moratoriums and people behind on their rent and things like that. Typically with month to month, do you have to give 30 day notice? Uh, so it depends on your state again. Nashville just passed something where I think it's 60 days. If you're going to raise rent, you have to give them a 60 day notice. Um, so again, though, 60 days is much better than having to wait a couple months to evict someone. Yeah. or not even being able to evict them at all. But yeah, in certain markets, there are uh, eviction, uh, I'm sorry, uh, notices that you have to provide to raise rents. So last question is, and it's it, it's interesting, it's invest in a market if the market is too high. So I'm assuming uh, another way to say that is, should I invest in a place that I live if it's high, like we're recording in Denver, should I do it here or should I do somewhere in like, down south where I could potentially get houses for cheaper. Yeah, it depends on what you are really good at, ultimately. Like I am, I think I'm very good at leading a team, bringing a team together, setting a common objective and making sure everybody's aligned to that objective. So me personally, it's it's no sweat off my back to go to a market where I feel like I can get a better return and build the right contacts, build the right team, and then go leverage that team to execute in that market. Um, so for me, I know that that would be a little bit better or easier for me to do than to try to switch strategies in the current market that I'm in. And that brings me to my second point. If you don't feel like that's something you wanna do, can do, should do, have the capabilities to do, the skill sets to do and things like that, I would say in every market across the country, people are out there making money in real estate and doing real estate transactions. Pull a list of who did the most real estate transactions in the past three months from your local real estate investment club or from your local MLS those people are out there making something happen. So they're doing it one way or another. You might have to shift strategies to invest in your market, but if you like your market, you're married to your market, you want to be in your market, then it might be time to adapt your strategies to, to be successful there. I, I think all these questions come down to what do you really want and, and is real estate or is this strategy or is this thing X, Y, or Z going to help you best accomplish that? And it's getting really crystal clear on that and then getting really clear on the outcome that you're going to get by doing X, Y, or Z. And Matt, you do such a good job breaking down the pros and cons. And it's so difficult because a HELOC, going back to the first question, HELOC can be phenomenal, but it also, like you could use a HELOC debt 
and buy dumb things and as a result be in a worse situation. It doesn't necessarily make the HELOC the problem, it makes the person or the investor the problem. So just some food for thought as we're in this frequently asked question series in the greater series that you and I are in on real estate investing. So anything that you want to end with? Yep, I think you're absolutely right on the heat lock. All right, subscribe, hit the bell, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.